Um, it's, it's always a pleasure to be able to address even your own church family uh, from God's Word. And I, I'm, I'm grateful to be here tonight uh, and to look at Jonah chapter 4 with you. Um, it may be for a class, but it's still, it's still a pleasure. Um, so yes, turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. Now the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in his day, saying, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. A true knowledge of God, including a true knowledge of what God delights in, the things he loves, is the great pursuit of the Christian life. Of course, to be a Christian, we need a right understanding, a right knowledge of who Christ is. Uh, not only um, his work and what he did, but that he's fully God and fully man, and that he came as a substitute for us. And as Christians, we need a right understanding of the nature of the Trinity, who God is eternally within himself. And even in other areas, really at a foundational level, Christian ethics is derived from a knowledge of who God is, that, that God is a lawgiver, that God has created the world with order in it, and that he delights in certain things, and that we should do the things in which he delights. That's Christian ethics all bound up in that. We need a knowledge of what Paul says is uh, the way that is fully pleasing to him, but how can we do that? How can we do what is fully pleasing to God if, if we don't know, we don't understand in what he delights? And so the law that was given to Israel, it was a great gift. And sometimes we look at it as a burden and it's, it's a heavy thing to carry, but it's also a gift. Because they were told exactly in what God delighted. They were given codes and commandments to direct their steps in a manner of life that would fully please God. And we also have been given the scriptures to direct our way uh, in, a, in a true knowledge of God, right? We're not walking in the dark as we uh, could be, but we're given a lamp for our feet, a light to our path that we might walk in the way fully pleasing to God. And woe to us if we misunderstand who God is. Woe to us if we look at his word, his scripture, his revelation of himself, and we misunderstand. But perhaps more frightening than that, perhaps more frightening than having a misunderstanding or a misconception of who God is, is knowing God rightly and hating him. Jonah does not suffer from a misunderstanding of the character and nature of God. He suffers from deep-seated rebellion against God and his authority his justice, and his mercy. Read with me, beginning in the last verse of Jonah 3. 
The word of God says, When God saw what they, the people of Nineveh, did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we, we come first in need of your spirit. Uh, Father, give us your spirit not only to, uh, to look at your word and understand the, the story, but Father, to know you truly and to have hearts soft and ready to know you and willing to obey you. Father, give me the spirit that I might speak clearly and boldly, which is how I ought to speak. Father, we trust that you will give us all these good gifts based on what Christ has done for us. And in his name we pray, amen. So I trust that the story of Jonah is relatively familiar to you. Of course, God came to Jonah and he told him to go call out against the great city of Nineveh, the seat of the Assyrian kingdom, which was chief among Israel's enemies. But Jonah flees, he runs. He runs to a boat, uh, as the text describes it, Jonah runs to Tarshish, Tarshish on a ship to flee the presence of the Lord. And of course, we know what happens next. God sends a storm uh, to batter the ship that's carrying Jonah. And in desperation, and at Jonah's own behest, the sailors throw him into the sea. But God's merciful. And he sends uh, and he appoints this great fish to swallow him up and deliver him to the shore. And so finally, Jonah goes to Nineveh and he preaches. And he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then in response to his preaching, what does Nineveh do? They repent. As we read earlier. Now chapter 4 of the story is really the climax. This is the high point of the narrative. Here in the final chapter, all the threads come together. All the pieces are, are fit into the puzzle, and we see Jonah's problem out in the open. In verse 2, Jonah's rationale for fleeing is finally and at last revealed. He says, I knew that you are gracious and merciful. Jonah did not flee from God's presence in the first chapter because he was afraid of the violence of Nineveh. Uh, he didn't flee because he's a sheepish person just wanting to not be in the spotlight. He didn't flee because he was unwilling to be unpopular in a foreign land. No, Jonah fled because he hated God's mercy. When God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, he thought, I just know he's going to relent. I can feel it. How can he let that happen? How can he let those people repent? Jonah ran because he didn't want to preach repentance. 
He, he wanted to be like Nahum, another prophet that we have uh, in Scripture to the city of Nineveh. And Nahum prophesied of Nineveh's downfall, saying, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. That's the kind of message Jonah wanted. But Jonah knew that's not what God had given him. Instead, in response to his short sermon in chapter 3, of course, all Nineveh, including the animals, repent. And Jonah's angry, exceedingly angry. One commentator wrote that for Jonah, uh, Nineveh's salvation is a true disaster. And so in verse 3 of our text in Jonah 4, Jonah presents an ultimatum to the Lord. He says, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. It's as if he's saying, either destroy Nineveh or destroy me. Choose. Choose for yourself this day. Who will you destroy? And then then the Lord responds, and it's simple, but it's biting. Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well? Are you really in the right here, Jonah? Is your way of justice more just than my own? But Jonah doesn't respond. Instead, in verse 5, he goes outside of the city into the desert, and he watches and waits to see what the Lord will do with his ultimatum. But before God gives Jonah a final response, he uses a parable to instruct Jonah. Read with me Jonah 4, beginning in verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there is more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. In this real-life parable acted out right before Jonah, God exposes Jonah's absurdity. Of how much more value is all the life of both man and beast inside the walls of Nineveh than this single plant outside the gates? Yet Jonah's concerned about, and he pities this plant. He shows no concern for human life. 
See, God does not delight in death. In Ezekiel 18.23, God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. You see, God doesn't delight in death. God doesn't delight in destruction. What does God delight in? He delights in seeing sinners repent. And so God asked Jonah, should I not pity pity Nineveh? Right? It is part of God's character to delight in forgiving sinners. It is overwhelmingly good when a sinner repents and God forgives them. Of course, Psalm 32, 1-2 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. You see, death, destruction, is at times just, and it's fitting for God to orchestrate and ordain in response to sin, like he did in Nahum's day when Nahum preached to Nineveh. But it's a punishment, an evil, a, a, a disaster that comes upon a person. And God doesn't delight in disasters and evil and punishment. No, he doesn't. He delights in sinners repenting. And you see, Jonah knows that. Jonah knows that. You see, the real tragedy in this story is that Jonah hates those truths. Now, at the end of this book, we're left wondering. We're left wondering of Jonah's response. Nothing is recorded uh, after God speaks to him in verse 11. It's silence. And of course, we can wonder at Jonah's response. We can wonder what he might have said, how he might have felt. And we, we wonder at the state of his soul. How did he stand before God? Did did Jonah repent? Did Jonah finally come to see his wrong? And maybe we could, you know, look through the book and make some preliminary judgments. We can ask, okay, well, who wrote the book and all these questions to see. But beyond all of that, we're left considering ourselves. First, I think we need to ask ourselves, do we delight? in seeing sinners repent. Right? Jeremiah 9 that we read at the beginning reminds us that as Christians, we're pursuing a right knowledge, a true understanding of God. But we're not only supposed to know God, to understand Him, but imitate Him as well. And God delights in saving sinners. So we should rejoice when we see Another sinner just like us repent and come to Christ to see their sin, to see the payment for their sin on the cross, and then to bend the knee to Christ and to call him Lord. That should excite us. That should make us joyful. We should delight in that. So let us test our hearts. Let's let's look at that standard and see what state our own soul is in. Beyond thinking of Jonah's soul, what, what about us? But of course, Jonah and his example is a warning to us. Jonah was not misinformed about God. He was rebellious. So where are we rebelling against God's authority, his his mercy, and his justice? 
I struggled with that, trying to determine, okay, where, where are we rebelling against God's mercy or his justice, his authority? It's just my guess that in our day, it's, it's most likely we're going to run into objections about God's justice, which Jonah is also objecting to. Perhaps it's easier for us in some respects to accept God's abundant mercy, right? That God comes to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. That God comes uh, for all, no matter their nationality, uh, no matter where they come from, no matter uh, their background. Uh, The winds of our culture kind of blow in that way. So maybe it's easier. But a lot of times we shrivel at the thought of God's perfect justice either carried out on Calvary, bloody Calvary, or in an an eternal hell. And we shrivel from the thought of having to tell our neighbors, our friends, maybe especially our family, about that truth. It's easier to tell them of mercy. It's, It's harder to tell them of justice. We would shrink from that. I think Jonah... His example reminds us that we need to struggle within ourselves not to rebel against what we know, right? Because there's misunderstanding and acting in in a false understanding. And then there's knowing the right thing and rebelling. We ought not to rebel against God's justice and authority and, of course, his mercy as well. Because... Ultimately, if we reject the God revealed in Scripture, not rejecting the truths, but hating the truths, we reject the whole gospel. But the story of Jonah, it's not simply a warning, lest we become like him. It's also an encouragement. God delights in saving sinners. So for the Christian, we need to be reminded that salvation belongs to the Lord as Jonah kind of ironically said in chapter 2. So maybe you've been witnessing to someone, a friend, a family member, a coworker. You've been praying for them for years. You've been praying that they might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ for a long time. And maybe unlike Jonah, you haven't turned your back on them in anger, uh, praying that God would not save them, But maybe you've quit praying altogether. Maybe you've given up on them. You no longer pray for them. You've given up the hope that God might save them. And of course, maybe you know intellectually that God could save. You have that right theology, but you just don't think he will. Friend, be encouraged. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God delights in saving sinners. It's not just that God gets to choose who gets saved, right? It belongs to him. No, he delights in saving. And so that person you know, the person you've prayed for, hope's not lost. Hope's not lost like it wasn't lost for Nineveh. Maybe at a mere 10 words like Jonah preached, they would repent. Renew your efforts. Preach the gospel yet again. Pray for them again. But again, maybe you're not a Christian. Friend, I have great news for you too, right? The story of Jonah reminds us that salvation is not for some 
uh, closed community like the nation of Israel. No, instead, we have access to God. We have fellowship with God based not on the sacrifices of the Jews, but on the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that same man, Jesus Christ, came preaching, repent and believe in the gospel. Believe. Believe what the scriptures have revealed about God. Believe what the scripture reveals about him who created all things and sent his son. Believe what scripture has revealed about that son, that he came to die in your stead for the great sin that you've committed, the guilt that's laid uh, on you, in front of you. Believe what scripture has revealed and repent. Turn from your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Bend the knee and call him Lord. Yet 40 days, as Jonah preached, yet 40 days and even our present world will be overthrown as the risen Christ Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead. But God has promised to relent, to not carry out disaster and destruction on you, you individually, if you repent and believe. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come knowing that there's, there's only one God who brings salvation. There's only one God who delights in saving sinners. And Father, all, all of us here who are Christians testify to the fact that you saved us. And you saved us despite our sin. You sent Jesus despite our rebellion. So Father, forgive us who are Christians, for rebelling against your mercy, your justice, your authority. Father, it, it all belongs to you. But Father, we would like to take it into our own hands. Father, forgive us and give us the spirit that we might relinquish our grasp of those things and trust in you. Trust that you might save the one we've been longing to see saved. And Father, prick hearts of the gospel, for the gospel of sin. Bring to mind those things and remind even the unbeliever that Christ came for the sinner. Father, in all these things, we're trusting in this work of the Spirit and in what Christ has already done. And in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.